is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You with me? Taking notes? Who is Jesus? All right. I got two young men over here. They're on their 10th hug. That's not right. Sit down. You guys want to hear the story of how I, uh, how I got back with my wife? Okay. I need everyone to sit down first. So I need everyone sitting down. I'm not the sort of speaker that can talk while people are at the water station. All right. Come on. Everyone sit down. So turn to your neighbor and say, are you taking notes? Come on now. Everyone sit down. We got an open mic to get to at 11 o'clock and God's going to move. This mic just seems a little hot to me, guys. Like I'm getting a little feedback up here. Thank you, my brother. So my wife broke up with me. How many times? Three, Three times. Three times. First time she broke up with me, it was upstairs in the art building. Second time she broke up with me, is on the way to Salt. Third time she broke up with me, it was after the Kyle for weekly meeting on a Friday night, and she gave me rules. The rules were, all right, every time I've tried to break up with you, it hasn't worked, so i got to set down some rules. She said, number one, you cannot sit by me at church. Number two, you cannot sit by me at the Chi Alpha meeting. Number three, when you come in the room, you cannot have a sad look on your face like I destroyed your life. <laughs> Number four, you are not allowed to talk to my friends. And the reason why is because after she broke up with me the second time, I made best friends with all of her best friends. And I, and I, I got them on my team. And they went to... Oh, by the way, i just like to point out that our fiancé and fiancé couple are together right up there in the front. <laughs> There was extenuating circumstances why they weren't sitting together, so I just want to redeem that. They're back together, and everything's good. Just in case some of you were interceding for their relationship, I just wanted to say that. So anyway, come on, we got a lot to cover tonight. So, so I had befriended her friends. Yes, guys, you can use that. And they had all talked her into trying to go back out with me again. So this time she said, there's no talking to my friends. And the last thing she said to me is, there's no talking to me. Just keep your distance. You come in a room, you smile like you're a saved, mature Christian man, and you sit in a different row than me. That's the rules. So I went back and said, all right, how do I figure this out? My wife was a fan of the Lord of the Rings. Anyone like the Lord of the Rings? This is back before the movies. She was a fan of the Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings. And so what I did is I started reading the Lord of the Rings. Now, if you've never read the Lord of the Rings, man, the books are really confusing. Like, like everyone has three different names. They're all half-breeds. It's really confusing. And so after about a month after she broke up with me, I approached her with fear and trembling. I said, I know I'm not supposed to talk to you. I just got one question, one question only. Can I ask my question? She said, yeah. I said, listen, here's my question. I'm reading the Lord of the Rings books. And she's like, you're reading the Lord of the Rings? I'm reading the Lord of the Rings books. And here's the thing is what I've decided is that it's really confusing and I need someone that can, that can advise me on what I'm reading. And do you know, do you know anyone that would have a passion for these books? She said, well, okay, you can just break the rules and ask me only Lord of the Rings questions. So I would come to her, I would come to her, 
And I would have good questions. Aragon, Strider, why has he got to, you know, I would come with the good questions. Why the elves and the dwarves don't like it? I would come with the dope questions. And then I finally said, listen, I got so many questions. Instead of me pestering you all the time, why don't we do lunch once a week and I will accumulate all of my questions for one lunch that I will purchase for you. Men, take careful note. I will purchase for you, being the key phrase. So we began to have the lunch, and we're talking through the Frodo's and the Bilbo's. And then I said to her, listen, 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 listen. I've run out of questions for this book, but I know the next book we're going to have some more questions. So instead of me accumulating my questions, why don't you come by my house on Saturday night? And I will make roast beef, mashed potatoes. A nice light salad and some homemade bread. And then afterwards, I will light a fire in the fireplace. And I will read the Tolkien aloud to you. And then whenever I have a question, I will just stop and ask my question right there. Son, I was married to that girl within the year. Now, I am not trying to empower any of you weird and awkward creepers to go after a girl that does not have the will of God stamped all over her forehead for your life. What I am telling you is that when you really want something, you got to pursue it. Women do not accept the affection of a man who will not pursue you. And here's the reason. This is not just some sort of churchy chauvinism. Here's the reason. If he's not going to pursue you right now when you've got two poopy diapered crumb crunchers in your life, he'll never pursue you then. When life gets hard, you've got to know that he's a pursuer. And things, none of the good stuff in life comes without pursuit. No one just woke up one day and said, I got abs overnight. It happened. I just got it. I was eating a lot of jello. I don't know what happened. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the logos. He's the logic of God. Jesus is the truth teller. He's the one who doesn't respect our do not disturb sign and comes in and, and speaks to us. But here's who Jesus is and what John wants us to know. Jesus is the pursuer. He's relentless. We think that Christianity is about us coming to God. Come to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be a more untheological way of saying it. You never come to God. God comes to you. Jesus didn't come to show the way. He came to be the way. He is Emmanuel, the God with us. He is the pursuer of those who don't even know yet that he is pursuing them. God is more committed to you. He's more after you. And there's no greater story than that than John chapter 4, the woman at the well. See, here's what's going on. We got to, someone say context. The Bible is so fun to learn as long as you open up your mind and let yourself think. And some of you that struggle a little bit academically, you just have to realize that what you were in fourth and fifth grade is not what God wants you to be academically. And you can open up your mind and you can learn. Your frontal lobe doesn't start, stop growing until the end of your 20s. And the Bible says, I mean, the science says that your brain can grow your whole life. You've got to open your mind up and be a thinker. 
And when you get into the context, it's so much more powerful. Here's what's going on. The first verse of chapter 4 says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. What happens is, John is baptizing crowds and it's driving the Pharisees nuts. They're like, we should be the reformers. Why is this guy getting all the crowds? His rallies are bigger than our rallies. And then John starts announcing, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not me, it's Jesus. Jesus begins to blow up. His disciples are baptizing more people than John's disciples. The Pharisees notice the popularity of Jesus. Therefore, here's the key, he goes to Samaria. Now, if you don't understand the significance of Samaria, you miss that whole verse. Let, let, me, let me put it in a modern translation. Jesus got the attention of the Democratic Party. So he went to an alt-right meeting. Does that offend you? That's what Jesus did. Jesus got the attention of the Republican Party. So he went to a all left. No, and it's the anti-AFTA or whatever you say it. Antifa, thank you. The group that you think is the most villainous group, the group that in your mind you have dismissed as filled with hate, bigotry, and absolute ignorance is the group Jesus wants to go be with. You're not believing me. (laughs) Tax collectors. Adulterers. These are the people he pursued. And he did it deliberately to annoy the righteous. The Pharisees took notice of Jesus. He went immediately to Samaria. John 4, 4 through 26. If you're still with me, give me an amen. Now he had to go through Samaria. Circle that. Underline it. Take out your diary, write it in the diary, and say, Dear diary, I need to think about this. Consider your next tattoo to be John 4.4. Anyone here love Jesus? No, 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 don't, don't give me the hype response. Is anyone... I, you know why I love Jesus? John 4, 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well, Jacob's well, I mean, was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone in town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That could be the most understated verse in all of the Bible. See what's going on here. Let me explain the context. There's a family food feud. Sorry, put up that up there. There are two groups here. One is the tribe Ephraim and the other was the tribe Manasseh. Now what happens is... uh, Joseph's sons were Ephraim and Manasseh, and when Israel was taken into captivity, they went into full family feud mode. Why? Because Ephraim stayed behind. Ephraim stayed behind, and they married non-Jews. And then they decided 
that they were going to actually have a rivalry with each other. So they said, oh, well, you know what? Your holy mountain is over there where Abraham and Isaac was. We're going to make a holy mountain over here. They said, you're first Baptist church. We're second Baptist church. And what happened is when the captivity ended, the Jews that came back looked at them as soiled, dirty half-breeds. They looked at them as compromisers, filthy sinners. The major issue was the location of where they worshiped God. If you worshiped God on Mount Zion, you were pure, pure. If you worshiped on the Samaritan mountain, you were compromised and dirty. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. By the way, there's so much here. I could preach for an hour just on this part here. First of all, why is she coming at noon? Because she's filthy. We already know that she's filthy from the context because she's coming at noon. If she was a pure woman, if she was an accepted woman, even within the Samaritans, which were all unpure, she would have come in the morning. That's when you came to get water. She was coming at the hottest part of the day to avoid being seen by anyone, probably shamed and ridiculed. Verse 10, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What does it mean that Jesus had to go to Samaria? Put up, put up that one map for me, the one map with the arrow on there. You got that? See, the road from Judea, he went from Judea back up to Galilee. That's what it says, right? The road from Judea to Galilee goes along the river. Along the river, you have all the Sonics and, and all the Chick-fil-A's and all the hotels, right? They didn't go... He didn't have to go that way. And actually, from an economic point of view, from an ease of travel point of view, from a where all the stops were point of view, he had to go along that arrow that I drew for you right there. Instead, he goes straight through Samaria. What does it mean that Jesus had to go through Samaria? It doesn't have anything to do with dates or times or how quickly the t- uh, travel needed to take. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he loved Samaritans. Because Jesus refused to disqualify even the most gross of cultural sinners based on their cultural background, how they looked, what their reputation was, what compromised their daddy or their daddy's daddy's daddy did. Jesus had to go because Jesus loves isolated, marginalized people. He had to go because of his nature. He had to go. If he didn't go through Samaria, he wasn't the Messiah. Do you see that, verse 4? So beautiful. Verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it, as did our sons and our livestock? She's kind of name dropping now. She's like, I know some stuff about this. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He's saying the same thing to her in verse 13 that he said all to Nicodemus. He's saying, you think it's about where you belong and where you live and what God did in the past, and it's about ritual and religion. I'm telling you that it's about dependence. It's about dependence. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water willing up to eternal life. He's simply saying that good old Protestant theology that you can't earn salvation. He's preaching the book of Romans right there in that phase. Salvation is a gift that cannot be earned. 
Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She still doesn't get it. Verse 16, he told her, Go and call your husband and come back. Now, watch the order here. This is so important. Jesus starts with a question, a very inappropriate question. From a Jewish man to a Samaritan woman. First of all, Jewish to Samaritan would be inappropriate. The next level of inappropriate is man to woman. And he says to her, Let me put my lips to something you will be drinking from. Super inappropriate. He starts with a question. And then he pivots and goes after the real room cleaning issue. By the way, that's the same way he treats you. He starts with a question, but don't think he's going to end with the question. Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So what she's doing here, she's obfuscating. She's trying to get him to argue about a theological issue because she doesn't want to deal with the fact that she's a wounded woman who's been traded from man to man to man. By the way, it's very likely here that she isn't a woman that has bad morals. She's a woman that has bad husbands and no economic power, therefore has to go from man to man. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Now, obviously, verse 22. Are you still learning something? Is it all right if we go verse by verse for a second? Verse 22 means the Samaritans had extra biblical texts. So they added to the Bible. By the way, that's an old deception. Everyone's still trying to do it to this day. What he's saying is you don't understand the Old Testament. So that whole verse 22 is about the Old Testament. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, the Old Testament prophecies for salvation comes from the Jews, is predicted by the Old Testament. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship the spirit in truth. He's not talking about singing songs and raising hands here. He's talking about having direct communion in a submissive way to God directly, not through the priest. He's saying a time is coming when people will have, in our vernacular, how we say it, a personal relationship with God. A time is coming when everyone will have a personal relationship with God. He's saying it's not a mountain, it's a Messiah. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, just look at verse 26 for a second. Jesus has not told his disciples he's the Messiah. The only one who knows he's a Messiah is John the Baptist. And when John said it, they were all confused. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only one who gets it right now is John the Baptist. Jesus has a decision to make. And his decision is, all of the prophecies, all of the sacrifice of the Old Testament have now become fulfilled. The Son of God has been born to a virgin. And for 30 years, he has been preparing himself for his public ministry that will, appeal, that will end in the death on the cross for all of mankind. This is the most important in, moment in all of history. And who does he decide to reveal it to first? Think about that. Five husbands 
impure racially, disgraced culturally. She doesn't vote the way you vote. She didn't go to the neighborhood you were from. She doesn't speak like you. She doesn't understand you. She hates you. And she hates herself. And Jesus said, she's the perfect candidate for the most important announcement ever made. Verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am. I am he. God, I love Jesus. Why master this material? It's for anyone who needs to know that in spite of all of their sin, their faults, their problems, their brokenness, in spite of every bad decision they've ever made, beside of every bit of fear and anxiety in them, that Jesus' capacity to love is greater than all their failure. It's for anyone who wonders if they're redeemable. And it's also for you and I to learn how to treat people. We have an epic, epidemic of lack of civility. We, even as Christians, relish being of critical spirit. We don't understand that you can't win enemies by Facebook posts. Stop it! As I preached angrily about you not getting angry. So ironic. I want to I tell I want to propose this to you. How Jesus behaves in this passage is a master class on how you and I need to behave if you're a committed Christian. It's a master class. And, and, and how Jesus behaves in this passage is one of the most hopeful interactions that two humans have ever had. So whether you're learning on the level of just understanding how much God loves you tonight or you're learning on the level of this is the way I want to behave, I've got three simple ideas for you and then we're going to have a little prayer time. If you're still with me, give me an amen. Here's, here's the problem. We would never have these interactions that Jesus had because we worship safety too much. We worship safety too much. We have apps on our phone that keep us safe, and we carry around little pepper sprays that keep us safe, and we, we grip our keys when we come out of Target at night just in case someone we can. Come on, does anyone know what I'm talking about? We are baby on board car seats. When my day and age, we didn't have car seats. We didn't have baby on board. My dad had a Volkswagen van that had no seats in the back. And I used to get in that van. All six of his kids would get in there. And I used to think, man, you can take such good naps. You can sleep so well in this van. Then I realized that the bottom was rusted out and carbon monoxide was coming up through the bottom of that van. Okay, that's a funny story. I don't care if you're not laughing. You're like wondering how I got the way I am. We just, okay, you still don't put, here's, here's a picture of the sort of playground that you grew up on. This is your playground. It's got soft edges. It's got round edges. It's got rubber mulch. It's all made out of plastic, and it snaps together. And I guarantee you, your mom is watching you every minute. You're on there saying, don't, don't, Johnny, get away from that kid. Get away from that kid right now. You want to see a picture of my playground? That's my playground, son. Do you know what that thing's called? That is the worst name device ever. It's called a merry-go-round. It should be called a throw-up-go-round. Because everyone knows this is how you do the merry-go-round. 
All the kids get on it, and the two biggest kids on the block start pushing it and going around and round and round and round and round until kids start flying off. I came home when my mom rung the dinner bell. When your kids are gone for like two minutes, you panic and call 911. I came home, and there was rips in my jeans. I had so many rips in my jeans, my mom would take my back pockets off and sew them to my knees. It's not, a, it's not a joke. I don't know why you laughed at that. We worship safe. We worship safe, and we worship safe to the point where we don't know why we feel so dead inside. You were never meant for safe. You're tougher than you know. You are more adventurous than you know. You can endure more than you know. You are made of good stuff. And you can do more than you think you can do. There's no rite of passage in our world anymore. There's no moment where someone challenges and says, all right, you're done being a kid. Now grow up. And go throw an elbow and get something done and talk to someone who disagrees with you and love them anyway. Number one, write it in. Take deliberate detours. Take del- some of you have had your life planned out since you were in fifth grade. That's, I like what Bob Goff says. Bob Goff says, don't have a career. Have careers. Get up every morning. I had this kid come to me in church one time. I'm preaching. My, our church is pretty big. And he comes up to me afterwards. We're, we have a Sunday night service, about 1,500, mostly college students. He comes up to me after that service. He says, Pastor Kurt, I want to do exactly what you're doing. I want to, how do I get your job? I said, do you got paper? He said, yeah. I said, take your paper out. He, he said, all right. And I said, now I'm going to give you the step, step by step, how you get to be the pastor of a big old church and get to preach to lots of people. He goes, all right, I'm ready. I said, step one, seek first the kingdom of God. He's like, what's step two? I said, there's no step two. There's only step one. Listen to me. I did not seek my current position, and I am not defined my current position, and I guarantee you there's lots of people preaching as much smaller groups than me, being more God-honoring than I am. What I do is I get up every morning and say, Jesus, what will advance your kingdom today? If it's a left turn, I'm going that way. If it's straight, I'm going that way. If it's sit my hind end down, I'm going to do that. I'm going to seek you first. And my friends, I have been prosperous during that. You don't believe me. Look at my gut. Look at my gut. I'm like 20 pounds overweight, just taking on my cross. Stop making, stop laying on your bed at night and saying, okay, what's going to happen? I'm going to take 17 units next semester, and then semester I'll have 15, and then I'll get the intern, I'll get this intern. If I go over there, I think it's saying, maybe she will go out with me, and then I'll go there, I'm going to take her there, and see what's saying, and I can borrow his car, and I'll come in and see, and I'll get that one internship, and I'll get her there, and then it's in fall and September. I'll be done by December. No wonder you can't sleep. <laughs> then you get up the next morning and go, I don't remember what I said. What was that plan? Is there an app? I can write it down in an app. Some of you need to get messy. Let go of your future. I came down to California. They wanted me to serve as a campus pastor at Cal State Stanislaus. It was this dumpy little campus. And I told my wife, I said, don't worry, baby. It was in a town called Turlock. I said, don't worry, baby, we'll never go to Turlock. Spent two years there. Um, then they asked me to go to UOP, Stockton, California, the murder capital of California. I said, don't worry, baby, we're not going to go up there. We're going to stay here in Turlock. I spent seven and a half years there. Then they asked me to go to Springfield, Missouri, an actual state without an ocean. How do you do that? I don't know. 
And, and I said, don't worry, baby, we're never going to the Midwest. We're never going to Missouri. I spent six and a half years in Missouri. Now I'm praying, Jesus, I refuse to go to Maui, Hawaii. I'm not going to do it. Doesn't, doesn't seem to be working. How to pray for detours. Here's a little tutorial, and then we're going to move on. How to pray for detours. First of all, what am I afraid to do? What am I afraid to do? Don't do that. You know, when people have fears, you know, one of the ways they help them get over fears is immersion therapy. In other words, they just expose themselves to the fears over and over again, so much so that, that they realize, well, you know, I don't have to be like, like spiders. Anyone here afraid of spiders? I'm not afraid of spiders. I'm not afraid of, of an animal what could be killed with toilet paper. I'm not. <laughs> I've come against many spiders. And uh, I, if you wear boots, you're fine. It's immersion therapy. Face your fear. Draw your fear. You know what? Hey, how many here have ever procrastinated? You ever procrastinate? Raise your hand if you procrastinate. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. Shh. I got a secret for you. Listen to me. You know what procrastination is? It's not laziness. You're not lazy. It's not what your mom thinks. You're doing all the other things. It's not video games. You know what procrastination is? No, no, no. It's unarticulated fear. You have a fear inside you about how you're really going to perform on that test. You have a fear about whether or not you really should be in that major. You have a fear. And, and when you keep that fear inside you without actually saying it to yourself, the Bible says walk in the light as he is in the white. Find that fear, drag it out of the light, and look at it. Hey, Jesus, what do you think of this? Go do something you're afraid of. Number two, where is someone hurting? Do you know, people tell me all the time, Pastor Kurt, I have a hard time having my devotions. I don't have a hard time having my devotions. I have them every day. I wake up having them. You want to know why? Part of it is because of the pattern that I was taught. But you know what the other part is? I have hurting people in my life. When you have hurting people in your life, you wake up praying. You're seeking the word of God for truth and answers for them. A lot of you are bored in your daily devotional life because you think your daily devotional life is about you. It's not. It's not. God never said, get a journal and get the Jesus Calling book where I talk pretty much like a girl through the whole book. I'm sorry. I'm preaching too hard now. I got to keep going. Here's a, here's a radical question. You want to get, you want to be just like Jesus? How can I bless someone who cannot pay me back? Do something that only God sees. So fun. I could tell you a story about that right now, but then you'd see it. <laughs> Number two, write it in. I'm going to skip the illustration for two. Keep going. Have dangerous conversations. Dangerous conversations. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? I'm sure she came up the mountain. She saw the well. She saw a man sitting there, and she thought about turning around. I imagine it this way. Just when she was going to, in her fear, going, I can't approach a man. He's a Jewish man. He's not even from our city. When she was about to turn around without any water for that day, Jesus said, hey, I, I need a drink. Would you give me a drink of your water? Here's what Rick Warren says. Jesus not, did not go after the marginalized. He moved the margins. <laughs> He didn't go after the marginalized. He lengthened the margins so that he was inside of them. He does three things in this interaction. Watch this. He breaks through the racial barrier, Jew and half-breed Samaritan. He breaks through the racial barrier. My friends, we have to silence 
any sort of talk that we have somehow gotten to a place in America, in the church, where racism is not an issue. I am so proud of you for what you're doing in the African-American conference ahead of time. And what you guys said about that at the beginning of the service, I could not be more proud of you. Everywhere I go, I say these things, and I find a chance to say it, because I have a son in my life who I've seen experiences firsthand. Everyone in this room has one of three experiences with racism. First of all, it has touched your life. You've been a direct recipient of racism. And to those that have, those that have been marginalized, ignored, you've walked in a room and been invisible in any way, shape, or form, you've been generalized or categorized because of your background, the color of your skin, the texture of your hair, here's what I want to say to you. Don't grow cynical. Don't grow hateful. Don't let the negativity of ignorance and hate infect you. Come with grace. Absolutely annoy them with niceness. Be open-handed. Start conversations. The greatest way to have fewer enemies is to love your enemies. The greatest way to have fewer enemies is to love your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. He said, turn the other cheek. He didn't say, get on to Facebook and condemn a whole group. Because all you're doing is giving them fuel for their ignorance. There's a second group. And you're like, hey, this is not my issue. This is not my issue. If you are a born-again Christian, it is your issue. This is how Christianity went forward in the first century. We started loving and educating women. We said women are not a special lower class of property. They're actually souls with the image of God on them. And because everyone in every class can be saved, then women can be saved. Therefore, women have to learn in the church. We were the ones who said education for women. We were the ones who said education for Romans, Jew, Gentile. The dividing wall that broke down the classes and the races is what was the radical idea. This idea that we all have the image of God on us, regardless of what micro or subculture we come from, is the thing that blew apart the Roman authority. We have to get involved. You can't say I'm a Christian and this isn't my issue. And the third thing is, in a subtle way, for most of us in a subtle way, you're a part of it. You have given in to the easy thinkism of when you see a certain group of people assuming that you know them. Just in your heart right now, I want you to think about that group that just irritates you a little bit. It might be a political group, it might be a racial group, it might be a might be an socioeconomic group. You know, I grew up super poor. I, I had to repent and learn that some rich people are wonderful. I had to repent about that. So I met these rich people that were God-honoring and sacrificial and awesome. Who's that group for you? Don't say them out loud. Think of them in your heart right now. Have the moral courage to go, who's that group I'm marginalizing? And I want you to take whatever label that you think they have on them, I want you to take it off, and I want you to put the label God has, because only God is allowed to label people. And you know what God calls that group that you don't like as much? He calls them neighbor. He says, I'm supposed to love them like I love myself. i got to move on. He breaks through racial barriers. He breaks through sexist barriers. I'll explain that. Don't let anyone tell you that women are not meant for ministry. I don't care. I, I, I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you how clear of an issue this is for me scripturally. I, you know, there's people that say, well, you know, it's co-equal in two different groups. Only one group can't do some stuff. 
Well, it can't be co-equal and one group can't do some stuff. Those two thoughts don't go together. That's really about control. It's not about theology. Um, number three. See, I'm going to just leave here after this conference is over, so I'll say whatever I want. This is the one I want you to really get. He break, with this Samaritan woman, he breaks through the racial barrier. He breaks through the sexist barrier. He breaks through the shame barrier. You know what's holding you back? You. My dad left when I was five years old. Really bad dad. He made, he, uh, my only real lasting memory of my dad is one day when he made a whip out of a golf club and beat me. I think I'm a pretty good father. In fact, I know I'm a pretty good father. You know why I'm a good father? I did exactly opposite of what my dad did to me. See, my problem was not my father. It was not my broken family. It was not my blended family. It was not my poverty. My problem was shame. There's a difference between selfish and self-love. Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus actually come, or is all this like tinsel and tradition? Did Jesus actually come? So I can't tell you how many college students I meet that say, I don't believe in Christianity because I don't believe that Christ actually came to earth. This is all a myth. It's a tradition. It was uh, mythologized over the years and the centuries. How many have ever heard this? So the problem is that's not the most authoritative teaching on this subject. There's a guy named Tacitus. He's a Roman uh, historian. Tacitus hated Christians. What's interesting about Tacitus is that he was motivated like no one else to say, listen, this was all a myth, but he didn't. He lived within 80 years of the life of Christ, and this is what he wrote. Jesus Christ was a man. And he affirmed many of the accounts of the Bible. Josephus, how many have heard of Josephus? He lived within 60 years of the living memory of Christ. And Josephus goes even further. Josephus talks about James, the brother of Jesus. He talks about John the Baptist. He talks about the miracles that Jesus did. This is credible, extra-biblical accounts. Now, here's the reason why I ask this. And I could, by the way, go into Paul. I could go into all of the affirmation of Paul. And I could go into all the eyewitnesses of the New Testament. Here's, um, by the way, Bart Erdman. Who knows who Bart Erdman is? Where's my Northern California? Bart Erdman and I disagree on everything except for this issue. Erdman says this is a solved issue. This is no longer a debate. Jesus was a real man who lived in Jerusalem at the time that he said he lived under the rulers he said he lived under. That's what Erdman says. Let me ask this question. What does that mean to your value? That God actually came to earth. What does that say about your importance? You see, we live in an age where we shame each other and it reveals the fact that we are walking in condemnation ourselves. There is a shame barrier. I want to tell you that forgiveness is essential for your father, for your mother, for your brother, for your sister, for that man, for that woman, for that person, for that teacher. But when you're forgiving people, do not forget that God offers forgiveness to you and you are forgivable. You are the art of God. Number three, our religion keeps us from God's power. Um, so Christmas is busy season for me, super busy for me. We do, uh, we do, well, I'm on the campus I served on this Christmas, so we have eight campuses, I did 14 Christmas services. We did uh, 31 Christmas services overall. And um, it's a really busy, 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 busy season for us. And one day, I was going to go have a very important meeting, and on the way to the meeting, I saw that there was a Walmart on my way, and one of my Christmas lights was broken on my house, 
And so I thought, I got five extra minutes. I'm going to duck in there, and I'm going to get a Christmas light because you cannot live where I live without Christmas lights or your wife will divorce you. And that's just part of the, that's the reality. So I was just like, I'm going to make myself late, but I'm going to run in there super quick. So I went into the garden section of Walmart. Come on, how many are still with me? Because you can get the little register back there. You can get in and out quicker. So I went into the garden section. I grabbed the two boxes of lights I need, and I'm about to leave, and this lady grabs me. She's about 65 years old. Now, listen, I, 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 who, who is the young lady that came up here and talked about her brain tumor? What was her name? Okay, Maddie. I, I didn't know you were going to say that, but when I said this story. So, Maddie, this girl grabs me, and she says, you're my pastor. I said, yeah, what campus do you go to? She goes, I go to the Blue Oaks campus. I love the Blue Oaks campus. I said, thank you so much. And I gave her the body language that said, I'm kind of in a hurry. And she said, oh, I know you're in a hurry, Pastor Kurt. I know you're in a hurry. I just want to say, I love you. I love you. I love Blue Oaks. So I go over and I start checking out. And she comes over to me and she grabs me. And she goes, I know you're busy, but I got to tell you something. I said, what do you got to tell me? She said, well, I didn't go to church until a year ago. I've never been to church my whole life. And a year ago, I went to the doctor, and the doctor gave me, uh, he gave me a diagnosis. He said, I got three tumors in my, in my body. And he said, we're going to take out the first two surgery right away, and then we're going to go through chemotherapy, and then we're going to just figure out a plan for the third one. So he, she said, I went through the surgeries. I went through chemotherapy. It was horrible, Pastor Kurt. It was horrible, horrible, horrible. And then after that was over, I went back in. They took another uh, uh, CAT scan to see what they were going to do with the other tumor. And the doctor told me that it was inoperable and too big to operate on. And he gave me a certain amount of years to live. And she said, I wasn't a Christian, Kurt. And I don't know why I said it, but I looked right at that doctor. I said, this is not your fault. You give diagnoses. But I want to tell you, you don't give years. Only God gives years. And if God wants to give me the years you said, then fine. But God gives years. And then she grabbed me by the shoulders, and I'll never forget it. She looked right at me, and she said, she said Pastor Kurt, I decided right then to believe. So I went home, and I looked for churches, and on the internet came up Blue Oaks, and I went there, and I haven't missed a single service in the last year. And then she started crying, and I was like, our Blue Oaks campus is a good campus. It's not that good. Why are you crying? (laughs) She said, you don't understand. I went back to the doctor today, and they could not find my tumor. And then I start crying, and she's crying. And this other Walmart employee's crying. And then there's one millennial Walmart employee, the clerk, she says, you want plastic or paper? And I was like, have you not been listening to what God is doing right here? I almost missed it because of my religion and my meetings and my busyness. I almost missed the most encouraging thing we got time for one more story. We got time for one. So I preached one time, and um, I was tired. So, so when, when I preach at one of our campuses, it's seven services over the weekend, Saturday through Sunday through Sunday night, seven services. We get done with the last service. I'm exhausted. And I just kind of think, and this little girl, 95 pounds, she blows by our security. And our security is like all these cop guys. She blows by them. She goes in the room. She's like, Pastor Kurt, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. I said, well, you know, my, 
uh, Pat's my admin. She can set up an appointment. No, I need to talk to you right now. I said, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go be with my family in a minute. She goes, no, I need to talk to you right now. And I said, I said okay, what is it? And she said, I have this friend. His name is Andrew, and he was supposed to die on Friday. Um, he's, his whole body's filled with cancer. He's 17 years old, and he didn't die on Friday. And we were praying for him, and he didn't die on Friday. And, and he said, would you get Pastor Curtin? Could he come over and pray for me? Could he come over and pray for me? And I said, yeah, you know, um, there's, a, there's a whole team of people that do that. And I could, I was just wanting to go home and do nothing. And she looked right at me. She said, no, I think God wants you to do it. And so I stepped up and said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll text you in about an hour. That's what I said. Because I was tired. And I don't like to see 17-year-old boys filled with cancer. I don't like that. I have a 17-year-old. I didn't want to go in that room and see him. So I went home my... Uh, Fixed an old meal, and she texted me. She said, Pastor Kurt, are you coming? And I made the mistake of showing it to my wife. Is about 30% more born again than me. And she said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Hospital's three blocks. So I texted her back. I said, I'm on my way. I went over there. I met the security. They gave me a little badge that says I'm a pastor. That says I can go up to the place where people are expected to die. I got in the elevator. went up there. I put my best pastor face on. I was, I was getting ready for my best pastor uh, scriptures I was going to use, my comforting voice and, and how I was going to pray. I was getting my pastor, my religion on me. I was saying, man, I'm, I'm, I worship on this mountain. And I walked into the room, and all the families there and a bunch of the friends, and, and this little girl, Lexi's there. She says, oh, Pastor Kerr, you came. You came. And I looked at, at Andrew, and he's in his bed, and he looks at me and says, Pastor Kurt, it's about time you got here. He says, I don't know what I can say that got me so full of drugs right now. And I started laughing. Everyone started laughing. He goes, that's the beautiful thing about being terminal. Everyone has to laugh at every one of your jokes, no matter if they're funny or not. And then I started laughing some more. I got a picture of Andrew. He's right here. Look at this. This is a picture of him. There he is. And then he looked at me. He said, Pastor Kurt, I got a secret. I said, what is it, Andrew? And he said, I didn't ask you to come over here and pray for me because I have all sorts of people praying for me. He said, it was just on my heart to pray for you. And I said, Andrew, Andrew, I was supposed to be here ministering to you. You were ministering to me. Yeah, I'm going to minister to you. He said, grab my hand. He said, this man's been working so hard. I've been listening to his sermons. Lord Jesus, bless him. Give him strength. He's laying in the bed with tubes coming out of his body. Just bless him, Lord. Bless him, bless him, bless him, bless him. I looked at him. I'm starting to cry. I said, Andrew. I said, I'm so sorry. He said, don't you dare say it. Don't you dare. He said, most people live their whole lives and have no idea where they're going. I've known where I've gone ever, where I'm going ever since I got this disease. He said, don't pity me. And he started preaching hope and seeking the first of kingdom and getting rid of religion and going after people to me. And I walked out of there lighter and better. The next night I was supposed to speak to about 700 high school students from five different high schools. And, and I'm, it's one of those things, I, I don't know what I'm going to preach to them. I can't find the sermon. And it's coming right up to the thing. And all these high school kids are coming. And I don't even know what I'm going to preach to them. And I'm like, God, why aren't you giving me a sermon for these kids? And then all of a sudden, first song of worship, it happened. God spoke to me. He says, because you're not preaching tonight. I said, who's going to preach, God? He said, I want Andrew to preach. And I said, well, he's in a hospital bed. He said, use your iPhone. So I got up there, and I told a little bit of the story, and then I grabbed my iPhone, and I, and I called uh, uh, Andrew before, and I said, listen, do you want to preach to the high school kids tonight? He goes, I'm in. 
So I held my phone up to the speaker, and for 20 minutes, Andrew from his hospital bed preached the gospel. And then I gave an altar code. Every kid came up. So next week, I'm, I'm going to William Jessup University. I called him the night before. I said, you and I are a great team. Here we go. Here we go. Same thing. I introduce the microphone. You get them all. They're all a bunch of Christian Bible college students. None of them saved. So come on. About 10 minutes before I got on stage, his sister called me. She said, Andrew just passed. I want to be like Andrew. God gives years. I don't know if I got a year or seven anymore. But God gives years. And every single year, I don't want my religion to get in the way of taking those detours and having those dangerous conversations. I want to encounter the God who loves women at wells, who must go through Samaria. Would you bow your head right now? I'm going to ask a simple question. I'm not going to embarrass you, by the way. I'm not going to do anything to make you publicly call this out. This is going to be a private moment. I just feel strongly from the Holy Spirit to say that. Right where you're at right now, I want to know if you want to be born again. There's someone in here that you've never actually taken the step to be born again. And my invitation is to you. But it's also to those that have been working their own righteousness. Instead of dependence, they've been accumulating a resume. And what you realize is that you need, you must be born again. That you must lay down your life, not at a mountain, but at a Messiah. If that's you, with every head bowed, no one looking around, I mean it, no one, not even leaders, I'm going to ask you just to simply slip your hand in the air and say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want that dependence on him. Now put it up high just for a minute, just for yourself. Just for yourself. Just you and God see that hand. I'll pray out loud. You pray in your heart. You don't have to get every word right, but say something like this. Write to God right now. Just say, God, I make myself dependent on you. Can't save myself. I can't save myself. So I accept your gift of forgiveness. Thank you for being the sacrifice for my sin. Thank you for dying for all of my pride and my lust and my greed and every failure I've ever had. Thank you for loving me enough that you came and died for me. I give you my life. I surrender it. The life you gave me, I give back to you. And now I commit myself to follow you. Help me be bound to you. Help me be in you. I pray it in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I'm not going to make you come forward or I'm not going to make you raise your hand or stand or anything like that. I, I'm just going to ask you to do one thing. Would you tell a spiritual leader in your life that you prayed that prayer tonight? 
not in, a, not in a public spectacle, would you just go to him and say, listen, I really surrender my life. Would you help me walk out that prayer? Would you do that for me? Just make a commitment to take that step. Here's my next question. You need to take a dangerous detour. You have held on to your plans too tightly. You realize that in the busyness and chaos and in the seductiveness of so-called success, you have not surrendered your future totally and fully to God. Or maybe you're just paralyzed. You're not taking any detour. You're just not moving along the road. And you need to be like Jesus. You need to go through a few Samarias and be open to whatever path God has for you. If that's you, would you just stand to your feet right now and say, yeah, Pastor Kurt, I need some prayer. I need to take some deliberate detours. Once you stand, I'm just going to invite you to come out of your seat, line up across the front. Just come out of your seat. Just come out of your seat. If you don't want to be bound to anyone else's expectations, but you really want to seek first the kingdom, you know. Now, don't come up if that's not your issue. But if you know, you say, God, I want to release my future to you. I want to take every step you have me to take. I want to be open to a change of plans. Come up. If you're, that is my second question, I'll do that. Here's my second question. Many of you. Go ahead and spread out. Here's my second question. My religion has become too religious. My faith has become rote. The living, breathing grace of God has been replaced by church going and religious activity. I need to meet not God on a mountain, but I need to meet the Messiah directly. I need to know that he loves me enough that he would encounter me. If that's you, you need a fresh sense of getting out of your religion and being in relationship. I want you to stand to your feet and come forward right now. How do I know that's me, Kurt? People think I'm more spiritual than I know I actually am. How do I know that's me, Kurt? I have a sense of what I should do, but I've lost the motivation to do it. How do I know that's me, Kurt? When God brings up the key issues, I want to change the topic. If you're a spiritual leader, if you are a staff member, I want you to find someone here and put your hands on them. I want you to go ahead, spiritual leaders, come up here. If you're sitting in your seat and you say, yeah, you know, I've got a lot of this sermon, but it's not really something I'm responding to. I'm going to ask you to do the double hard work of actually just sitting in your seat and interceding for people. I want you to pray for people that truly just submitted their life. I want, you know how scary it is to know that you've got to perform ever since fifth grade to get into the right program, and now you're up at this altar saying, God, I might just let you change everything. I want you to pray for everyone. Don't wait for me, spiritual leaders. The second you find someone, you lay hands on them and pray for them. If you've got someone near you that you know and you love, and they know you and love you, you could pray for them as well. I'm just going to ask the worship team to play in the background just a little bit. Worship team, come on up here. Just play in the background a little bit. We'll just spend a few minutes just in intercession over these issues. Amen?